The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. 17th century English Puritan theologian Matthew Henry once said, the tyrants of the world are but the tools of providence. The tyrants of the world are but tools of providence. Do you believe this? When you look around at the leaders of the world, benign and despotic, do you believe that divine providence governs all that takes place? Good decisions, bad decisions, righteous policies, wicked policies. All events that take place in any given nation during any given time are all planned, ordered, governed, and performed for two main purposes, the glory and the good. All events that take place are planned, ordered, governed, and performed for the glory of the one true and living God and the good of those who serve him. Do you believe this? Please listen to what the Lord says to the king of Assyria, one such ruler, in 2 Kings 19, and consider exactly what he's saying as I read aloud one single verse, verse 25. Thus says the Lord to the king of Assyria, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. This morning we are continuing our examination of the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter nine, verse eight, and continuing on through both chapters nine and 10, Lord willing. Isaiah 9-8 is immediately following the encouraging prophecy of the coming Messiah in verses 6 and 7. Now directly following this enormous promise of salvation by the mighty God, Isaiah goes right back to the warning, right back to the coming Assyrian invasion, first against Israel, the northern kingdom, and then on to Judah, the southern kingdom, where Isaiah ministered and prophesied. Now, time does not permit me to read aloud our entire text this morning before we dive in, but please turn to it and keep your finger there as we will, Lord willing, be examining all 48 verses, Isaiah 9, 8 to 10, 34. Also, I'll be setting their context using some passages from 2 Kings chapters 15 to 19. But before we do anything, let's pray for the Lord's blessing as we look into his word together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of gathering around your word and in the fellowship. I pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would encourage us and give us ears to hear and feet to perform. Dear Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all we think, say, and do this morning. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ever since Israel was divided in the day of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, with 10 tribes to the north, with the capital of Samaria, under King Jeroboam, and two tribes to the south, with the capital of Jerusalem under King Rehoboam, we have had two separate countries, the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. With Israel in the north, over its 200 or so year history, it's had basically one evil king after another, leading the nation deeper and deeper into idolatry and further and further away from the Lord. 
With Judah in the south, they had a bit more success in their leadership, but good kings such as Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah were few and far between. So if you recall from the past few sermons here at RGF on Isaiah 7 and 8, the prophet warns Judah's king Ahaz that he has bigger problems than just Israel and Syria coming against him. Something far worse was on its way, but the Lord promised to deliver Judah if he would only trust in him. But you remember the story. King Ahaz, rather than trusting in the Lord's deliverance, asks Assyria for help, offering to pay them for protection from Israel and Syria. So, Isaiah foretells the coming attack on Judah by Assyria, the very nation that Ahaz went to and paid money for for protection. But first, he, Isaiah, takes a slight detour under God's direction and prophesies against the northern kingdom of Israel, and specifically its capital, Samaria. Now, before we read Isaiah 9, 8 and following, and in order to properly understand what's being described here, we need to take a brief look at Israel's and Judah's history and relations with the kingdom of Assyria. I'm gonna be referring to 2 Kings 15 and 16 in summary and I'm gonna do so chronologically. So in 2 Kings 15, we read about the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pelesar. Your Bible might, sing, might say King Pol, which is easier to pronounce. Both names are for the same man. King Tiglath-Pelesar invading the Northern Kingdom. He's, and this time the Northern Kingdom of Israel was led by King Menahem, who was an evil king. And Menahem paid the Assyrian king to leave the country and he did leave. But the deal was that Menahem would be a vassal and Israel would essentially become a vassal state of Assyria. And that meant a costly yearly tribute. Even so, roughly 20 years later, Assyria came back to invade Israel and deported much of the people of the Northern Kingdom back to Assyrian territory and resettled the land. Next, in 2 Kings 16, we see a plot by Israel, the Northern Kingdom, and Syria to attack Judah the southern kingdom. That's what I mentioned a few moments ago referring to Isaiah chapter seven and eight. That's where this story sits in Isaiah. King Ahaz of Judah learns of this plot and instead of obeying the Lord, he enlists the help of you know who, Assyria. Look at verse seven. In 2 Kings 16, seven, Ahaz sent messengers to Judah. Pilis, uh, sorry, Asa, Asa, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilisar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So Ahaz gives the Assyrian king silver and gold from the temple and from his own kingly supply. And Assyrian king Tiglath-Pelesar attacks Damascus, the capital of Syria, and kills its king. So in light of these events, let's turn our attention to our text this morning Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 and follow along as I read verses 8 to 12. Verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. 
but the Lord raises adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. These first four uh, verses of our text this morning will be examined under our first point, Samaria's sin. Point one, Samaria's sin. And Lord willing, this point will run from 9, 8 all the way to 10, verse 4. So in what I just read, verse 9 tells us that Israel was so self-consumed that they attempt to shrug off the destruction wrought on by Assyria, both in its territories, towns, and villages. That was in, in 2 Kings 15. And even in the face of the coming threat to its capital, Samaria, they fantasize about rebuilding better and planting bigger. They completely miss or choose to ignore the divine purpose behind the attack, the cause, punishment for their sin. And they stubbornly plan to reconstruct the kingdom, even though verses 11 and 12 tell us that enemies are coming to devour Israel, they continue on in their rebellion. Look at verse 12. It says, for all this, his anger, God's anger, has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Brothers and sisters, remember these words because this phrase will be stated three more times and a total of four times to cap off each of Isaiah's dire predictions. Now, once again, we need to set the context using 2 Kings, this time, chapter 17. You see, Israel's king, Hosea, another evil king, in fact, he was the last king of Israel. Hosea rebels against Assyria. Now, remember what I read before under King Menahem, Israel was a vassal state and was paying yearly tribute to Assyria. Well, this Hosea stops paying and conspires this time with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to halt all payment to Assyria. Now, in light of that, please look back in Isaiah 9, verse 13. What do the people in Samaria do? In the shadow of the upcoming Assyrian threat, do they confess in turn? Do they repent in belief? Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. No, they did not take heed. They did not recognize that this was the Lord's doing. Verse 13 said, it was God who struck them. Now I'm going to read verses 14 to 21 and after that make a couple of observations. So please follow along. Isaiah 9, 14 through 21. So the Lord cut off Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over the young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. 
Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So in that reading, we have two more times that Isaiah says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. In other words, there's more wrath to come. He's not done yet. Through suffering and famine, they clung to their sinful self-sufficiency, their wickedness and pride. They did not cry out to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Instead, they relied on themselves. In fact, they were so evil, they were eating each other. I mean, the, the, the imagery here is of a famine. And the imagery of is they're suffering, and yet they're still fighting. And yet together, they come together for one reason, to hate Judah. So chapter 10 continues in the Lord's condemnation of Israel as Samaria falls to the kingdom of Assyria. And this is also recorded for us in 2 Kings 17. In a military campaign started by Assyrian king Shalmaneser and completed by the Assyrian king Sargon II, Samaria is finally conquered. So we're going to read Isaiah 10 verses 1 to 4 as it continues the condemnation. It says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So now we see the blame is going directly at Samaria's leaders for leading the people astray, for writing unjust laws, for not caring for the widows and the fatherless. But you'll notice that the Lord said before he has no regard for them anymore. See, the Lord is known as the care of the widows and of the fatherless and of orphans, right? Here he says, I will not care for them. Because even though the leaders were responsible in leading the people wickedly, the people themselves became wicked. So even the poor in the nation were as wicked as the rich in the nation. That's why he says, I will cut head and tail. The head of the rich, the tails are the lying prophets and leaders. And then the chaff and the reed, the strong and the weak. So due to the sin of Israel's leaders and the people, the capital city is breached. The people, both strong and weak, are either killed or taken back to Assyria as captives. The land is resettled by Assyria, and the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and is no more. And that concludes part one, Samaria's sin. Samaria's sin is no more because they have been punished. And at that, starting in verse five, Isaiah shifts focus. This time his attention is going to be on the kingdom of Assyria. As we now move on to point two, Assyria's arrogance. And Lord willing, this will cover verses 5 to 19. So this prophecy in chapter 10, starting at verse 5, is directed at Assyria in general and its conquering king specifically. And this culminates in the king that's going to come against Judah, King Sennacherib. And in his plan to invade Judah and threaten to siege and destroy Jerusalem, its capital. 
So keep in mind that this attack occurs 20 years after the fall of Samaria. So this is already another generation going by. And its events, once again, are recorded for us in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. But Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 starts like this. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Who is angry? The Lord is angry. Who is the rod? Assyria is the rod. And God has used and will use Assyria, his rod, to punish Israel, and as we shall see, to punish and chastise Judah as well. Verse six says, against a godless nation I send him. Ouch, a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him. Who is the godless nation? Who are the people of God's wrath? Is it not Israel and Judah? Who is sent by God? Is it not Assyria? Continuing in verse six, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It's God's judgment coming through the army of, Syria, of Assyria. So before moving on, let's get something straight. Who is performing the will of the Lord here? Assyria is. Who is disobeying the will of the Lord here? It was Israel, and now it's Judah. Now to be fair, Israel is, Assyria is carrying out the secret will of the Lord, his providence, his divine decree, his sovereign ordering, ordering of all things that are gonna come to pass. It's his secret providence. While Israel and Judah, on the other hand, are disobeying his prescribed will, his revealed will, found in the Old Testament scriptures, the law, and they actually had the prophets living among them, like Isaiah, telling them what the will of the Lord was. But they were disobedient. They did not listen. Now, an argument could be made that this was also the secret decree of the Lord, but that's a sermon for another time. But what we need to focus on, that they were instructed directly to obey, they were instructed and they were warned. They were warned and they were instructed, but they did not obey and they did not listen. So let's discover in Isaiah 10, 7 to 11, the arrogance of Assyria now. I'm gonna back it up a little bit and, and read verse six again and go to 11. The Lord says, against the godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are, my are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images was greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, Shall I not do so to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So we see here that Assyria, though sent by God to do these very things, was under the impression that she was conquering of her own will and her own might. When the king says he's conquered the kingdoms of the idols, he's right. But he's claiming that he is more powerful than the gods of the nations that he has conquered, and he includes in that list the God of Israel and the God of Judah. Perhaps the fact that sadly, 
Judah and Israel did have idols in their nation, and they weren't as many or as ornate as the one in the other pagan nations that he had conquered. Maybe this factored into his arrogance. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is this, that in his speech, Sennacherib dared to liken Yahweh, the God of the universe, with the false gods, idols made of wood and stone. We don't have time to explore fully this morning, but Sennacherib's hardiness is on full display in 2 Kings chapter 18. When we learn that he first accepts tribute money from Judah's king Hezekiah, we'll get to that in a minute, he accepts money to protect him, and then he attacks Judah anyway. Now in brief, King Hezekiah of Judah was a good king, but his trust in the Lord wavered after being threatened by Assyria. You see, like Hosea, the final king of Israel 20 years before him, Hezekiah stopped paying the tribute money that his father Ahaz had been paying Assyria as his vassal. Remember, we talked about that before. And like Hosea, Hezekiah went to the king of Egypt for help. Assyria finds out what he did, and he starts attacking and invading Judah's land. So what does Hezekiah do? He pleads with him to forgive him, but he doesn't please with the Lord. He pleads with the king of Assyria, please forgive me, take my money, please. I'll give you more gold and silver from the Lord's temple, take it. Please stop the invasion. So what does King Sennacherib do? Well, he takes the money. And then he sends three of his commanders to Jerusalem with a letter to taunt and frighten the city. We read of his blasphemous letter in 2 Kings 18 and also in Isaiah 36 and 37. Are we able to put 2 Kings 18 on the screen? Caleb? Okay, please turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 18 as I'm going to read verses 32 to 35. 2 Kings 18, 32 to 35. Awesome. This is the letter. The letter isn't awesome. That's awesome. This is the letter from Hezekiah, uh, from Sennacherib to Hezekiah, to the people on the wall. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? We see it. It should frighten you even to read these words. We see Assyria's arrogant attitude and all its infamy here. So back in Isaiah 10, Verse 12, we see what the Lord planned to do about this. Isaiah 10, 12 says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So here we have the fact that Assyria's king, the Lord's tool to punish Israel and Judah is about to be punished himself. Why? For the attitude of his heart that he displayed while being used by God. For the attitude of his heart he displayed while being used by God. Verses 13 and 14 provide even more evidence. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. 
I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Notice everything he said there was true. He did do all those things. But there's one problem. He says, by the strength of my hand, I've done it, by my wisdom. I did it all by my strength. And now we have the privilege, the privilege of seeing God's logic and his reasoning. Look at verse 15. This is what the Lord says. Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. What imagery? What imagery? Assyria is the ax, but God is the hewer. Assyria is the rod, but God is the lifter. Assyria is the wooden staff who cannot lift the one true God who is not made of wood or iron or stone. Amen. The Lord beat Israel with Assyria. He was beating Israel with, and he's gonna beat Judah with Assyria and later we'll see Babylon. There were tools in the hand of the mighty God, but they did not so intend. I will do it. So what will the Lord do? Continuing on in Isaiah 10, verse 16, we read, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under a, his glory, a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So that's what the Lord's going to do. Now, some commentators, I'll admit, think this may be talking about Judah as well, because when the Lord says, when I finish with Judah, he's still going to punish them. Then he's going to turn to Assyria. That might be true. He speaks of a remnant, which the, 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 uh, the idea of remnant will continue on in, in, in the land of Judah. You could take it either way. He is going to punish Judah, but the way that I see it, it seems to flow very nicely from the fact that now he's saying woe to Assyria. So he is going to punish Judah, but I feel that he is um, still addressing Assyria at this point. And we will see in a little bit just what happens to the Assyrian army about five kilometers outside of Jerusalem. But before that, please skip down to verses 28 to 31, which the Lord is going to describe the uh, Assyrian army marching toward Jerusalem. And again, it's in poetic form. Hear how it describes the advance. He, the Syrian army, has come to Aath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibim flee for safety. See, they're conquering and destroying as they make their approach. And it is scary imagery, and it is scary. 
This army was brutal, it was well known, it was the conquering army of the known world at this time. In light of that, check out this interesting quote by Sennacherib himself, and this is extra biblical. This is not biblical, it's not biblically inspired, but it's, it's from the annals of Sennacherib himself. And listen to his description of his march to Jerusalem. It says, as to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to his strong cities, walled forts and countless small villages and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought near the walls with an attack by foot soldiers using mines, breaches, as well as trenches. I drove out 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting, and I considered them slaves. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were at a city gate. Thus I reduced his country, but I still increased the tribute and the presence to me as overlord, which I imposed upon him beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. It's very interesting. It's not inspired, but it is by his own hand, scholars believe. And first of all, I love the fact that it substantiates the biblical account that, Isaiah, that Hezekiah was indeed the king of Judah at that time, and Assyria did in fact march upon uh, Jerusalem, and the fact that Hezekiah stayed in Jerusalem, um, and that uh, the Assyrian army never entered. And I'm not surprised at all, and we shouldn't be that a haughty king like that would not record what we're going to read in a couple of verses about their defeat outside of Jerusalem, um, that he would want to still look good and say, well, I still got tribute from Hezekiah. But I know it's very interesting that when the king of Assyria 20 years before entered Samaria, they entered Samaria. They seized it for, I think, three years, and they entered it. They took all the people out, and they resettled it. He does not do so here, and we're going to find out why. Because in Isaiah 10, 32 to 30, uh, just stay at 32, Isaiah 10, 32, this is what the Lord says at the end of the advance of the army. Verse 32, this very day he will halt, he'll stop at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So he's going to stop. He's not going to enter in the city. And even he says in his own words, well, I, he was shut up in there and I got more money from him and I went back. That's not like the king of Assyria. But we have the biblical account which is inspired and is true. And in 2 Kings 19.32-34, there's a continuation of Isaiah's prophecy. And Isaiah says this, he Sennacherib, will not enter the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and the sake of David, my servant. Two main purposes, the glory and the good. And so we have it, that the Lord said, this far and no farther to Assyria. Sennacherib was not going to enter Jerusalem that day. Instead, he and his army would be punished for the, for the brutality in which he conquered the lands, for their motivation, for their bloodlust, for their pride, for their arrogance, and for his blasphemy. He would not enter the city, declares the Lord. 
And thus concludes point two, Assyria's arrogance. Now we will return to the gory details of Assyria's defeat in a little bit, immediately following our third and final point this morning, which is Jerusalem's jeopardy. Point three, Jerusalem's jeopardy. So Judah's been invaded, 20 years following the fall of her sister Israel. Assyria takes money from Judah, but invades anyway. They do much damage almost all the way to Jerusalem, about five kilometers outside they stop. So we ask ourselves, why? Why did God send them in the first place? He's gonna defend the city, why did he send them? We need to understand that Judah was not innocent. A lot of times we read uh, the Bible, we, we, we get in our minds, well, we have Israel and Judah, the good guys, and then we have Egypt and Assyria and Syria, and th that's not always the case. Yes, Israel was God's chosen kingdom, his people on earth. And when the divided kingdom, they were still representing him on earth. But as you see, as they fall farther and farther away from him, it's not so easy. We don't always side with the good guys, because the good guys don't always do so good. And it's an amazing thing, and that's another reason why the Bible is... Um, Another reason why we can be trustworthy, because no one looks good. It shows the human condition in its full ugliness. There is one perfect, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Judah is not innocent here. You remember King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father. Um, he not only gave money to Assyria, he had an altar made, a pagan altar modeled after the one he saw while visiting the Assyrian king in Damascus. In short, what he did is, when, when, when he made the, the, the deal with Assyria and Assyria conquered Damascus and killed its king, uh, King Ahaz visited ki the king of Assyria in Damascus to congratulate him. And then he sees this ornate pagan altar there. He's like, guess what? We need that in the Lord's temple. So he goes back and he has one made just like it. And he takes the Lord's altar and moves it to the back of the temple and puts in a prominent place this pagan altar. Not innocent, okay? And it, and it even says that King Ahaz passed his children through the fire in, in honor of the pagan gods. And it's believed that maybe Hezekiah might have been... Uh, burnt as a child uh, in the sacrifices that his father made. So not good, not good. So uh, he had to replace the altar. That's found in 2 Kings 16 as well. But we do read that his son Hezekiah, by God's grace, would undo a lot of the evil that his father had done. And by God's grace, he was a relatively good king uh, of Judah. But even so, the nation itself did not follow the Lord in truth. There were religious pretenses, yes, but not true obedience from the heart. So Hezekiah receives, like we said, from the three Assyrian commanders, the letter from Sennacherib threatening Jerusalem and defying the Lord. And Hezekiah finally goes to the Lord in desperation and prays. And here is the account of his prayer in 2 Kings 19, 14 and 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear what the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, 
the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Two purposes, for his glory and for our good, for the glory and the good. And the Lord then comforts Hezekiah. Look at Isaiah back in our text for today, chapter 10. We're going to read verses 20 to 27. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand, is the, as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will, will be broken because of the fat. Wow. Now we note here that Isaiah mentions the survivors the remnants, the remnant. He says, Abraham's descendants once were a multitude numbering as the sands of the sea, now will only be a remnant. But this remnant will lean on the Lord in truth. This remnant will lean on the Holy One of Israel in faith. Although destruction is decreed, he said that. So even as he's comforting them, he's like, this is gonna go on for a little bit longer. I've decreed it, it's gonna take place you will be chastised, but when it's subsided, my anger will be turned against Assyria. So destruction was decreed not only for Israel and not only for Judah, but for Assyria as well. But ladies and gentlemen, note that it's destruction for the chaff and not the wheat. It's for the goats and not for the sheep. It's for the reprobate and not for the elect. You see, these Assyrian invasions, like we said, were punishment from God. They were punishment toward unbelievers. And that's a temporal foretaste of the eternity in hell that awaits all of the ungodly. It was a temporary taste of what's going to be in eternity. While at the same time, the same events were chastisement toward believers, meant to bring them to deeper faith and repentance in the one true and living God. The same event, different purposes. So no doubt Isaiah here is also referencing the coming Babylonian inv invasion of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity that would occur about 100 years later. But even in this event, which we're not going to discuss today, a remnant would be saved and come back and actually rebuild Jerusalem. Read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra. 
And this physical remnant symbolizes the spiritual remnant, the elect of God in Christ. This is spoken of by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. And here, Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And Paul quotes him like this. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Now in the Old Testament context, Hosea was telling Israel that those within that would repent would be saved. That's what he's saying. But Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, extends that to include Gentiles as well as the repentant within Israel and Judah, the elect from all the peoples of the earth. Paul in Romans 9.27 also quotes, and this time he quotes Isaiah 10, what we read today. He mentions the fact that those saved will not be as the sands of the sea, but will only be a remnant. Those who repented from Israel are that remnant. Those who repented from Judah are that remnant. Ladies and gentlemen, those here who have repented and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are that remnant. Many are called, but few are chosen. We must strive to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The Old Testament elect were saved in one way, through the life, death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in types and shadows and rituals and sacrifices, veiled, but always and forever through the Messiah, by the grace of God. It says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Before the law, before anything. Righteousness. Faith. But even before we finish out this third point, Jerusalem's jeopardy, I'm going to appeal to all who are hearing my voice who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're hearing a lot about punishment, a lot about sin, a lot about God's anger. There are no jokes this morning. Usually I have them, I don't have any today. There's a lot of wrath and punishment and anger. What can you do in the face of that? You can run to Jesus. See, he bore the wrath of God that was meant for his people. He bore the wrath of God, not only the temporal wrath dying on the cross, but the spiritual wrath poured out on him for the souls of all who would believe. Acknowledge your sin, unlike Samaria that said, oh, we'll just rebuild. Acknowledge your inability. Acknowledge your complete incapability of satisfying God's wrath and appeasing it. And run to Christ who is able to save you to the uttermost, to save you completely. Trust that his perfect life was for you and that his death on the cross was for your sins and took them away. Ask him for the grace that you could walk with him in gratefulness, in faith, and in repentance. So please think on that as I, move, as I complete our third point and move to the application. That's really the only thing you need to hear. God's wrath is coming and it will not end until it's satisfied, which means in eternity in hell for the unbeliever or on Jesus on the cross. And the Lord knows those who are his. So back to Hezekiah and our third point, Jerusalem's jeopardy. Although he was initially sinful in his lack of trust, going to Egypt and then cutting the deal with Assyria, a deal that Assyria did not honor and broke, then he was humbled. He was humbled by God 
and leaned on him, and God delivered Jerusalem personally. As I mentioned before, as he mentioned before, Midian at Oreb, which is Judges 7 under Gideon, and Egypt in the parting of the Red Sea. Two times the Lord threw the opposing armies into confusion personally. There was no means. He didn't give the army strength to defeat the enemy. He defeated the enemy himself. In the same way here, the Lord promised to personally fight for Hezekiah. In Isaiah, the last two verses of our text today, verses 33 and 34, chapter 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And now, hear the words of 2 Kings 19, 35-37 for the details. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, and his son, reigned in his place. The angel of the Lord struck dead 185,000 Assyrians. And there we have it. Jerusalem's jeopardy turned into joy. Praise God. But that joy would only last for another 100 years or so. In our life, that's a long time for us, but in a nation with a lengthy history, it's not that long. Because we know from 597 to 581 BC, Babylon, which at this time was serving Assyria, <laughs> will rise in prominence and become the most powerful empire in its time. This Babylon will come in to Jerusalem, will loot and destroy the temple, and will take Judah captive to Babylon. And the city will finally have rest from the iniquities of Judah. So it is going to happen, but not for a hundred more years. And so, brothers and sisters, what have we seen today? We've seen Samaria's sin. We've seen Assyria's arrogance. We've seen Jerusalem's jeopardy. And what can we learn from each? Well, first, let's look at Samaria. Now, Israel's leaders were making unjust decisions, neglecting the poor and needy. So right off the bat, I encourage my fellow elder, Caleb, and exhort you to prayerfully and carefully consider how to best honor God by leading and serving the flock at RGF. Let us strive to make godly and biblically-based decisions meant to honor God and to edify his church for the glory and for the good. Let that be our number one priority. Let us not run to Assyria for help or for tips or for advice, but let's make our decisions based on the word of God and his will. Secondly, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, instead of like Samaria devouring each other as Ephraim and Manasseh did, prefer one another, serve one another, encourage one another, stirring up one another to faith and good works. How? Well, we can start by praying for and with one another. We can invite a family over our house for a meal for fun and fellowship while socially distancing, of course. How about phone calls or texts or emails or cards? 
you know what this is. Every week when we get a card from Jenny Cotto, it comes at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. Always following an argument with my wife. <laughs> wow, I'm praying for you. May God richly bless you. Okay, we're going to pray now. It's amazing how the Lord uses this to encourage my family, and I'm sure many of you are encouraged by her cards as well. In your homes, have family time. Those of you that have a, a believing spouse and, and you're raising your children up in the admonition and fear of the Lord, make seeking the Lord together a priority by holding family devotions, Bible reading. Sing together praise and worship to the Lord. Doesn't matter what you sound like. You hear me many weeks up here singing. Doesn't sound good. Doesn't matter. Sing to the Lord as a family. Worship him. In your personal time, pray for the grace and ability to mortify sin, to kill sin in your life and to demonstrate the fruit of a saved life. And finally, pray for our nation, for its humbling and the grace of God to withdraw his hand of judgment. I'm not a prophet. I'm not coming here saying, thus says the Lord. But in my limited understanding of the word of God, it seems as though his hand of judgment is here. Whether through COVID-19 or civil unrest or unjust, ungodly laws being passed and celebrated, It seems like his hand of judgment is here. So pray for our nation. First, that there would be a revival in our land, that the Lord would save our leadership, turn them toward the Lord so that in turn they would make godly decisions and pass godly laws, and that God would save the common man and woman, that believers in Christ led by his Holy Spirit would make decisions, would repent, and that God's hand would be withdrawn from us, that his grace would be ever-present So please pray for our nation. And even after praying for our nation and our country and its leaders, don't follow Samaria's sin by completely trusting in it 100% on government, on man-made institutions, on self, but rely solely on the Lord. Amen? And this one is very quick. Application number two, what can we learn from Assyria? Well, we know God hates pride. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So even if you're used by God, maybe not to destroy and maim and kill like Assyria was, but to serve God in serving in the church, in the sound booth, in preaching and teaching, in children's ministry, in caring for one another. Whatever way you're being used by God, in every way you serve, humbly serve. And be able to say with a clear conscience, we are but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Luke 17.10 Be a vessel, yes, ready to be used by the Lord to what? To bring him glory and to edify his church for the glory and for the good. And do it all with a proper attitude. If we learned anything from Assyria, we know that God cares how we obey as much as if we obey. What our attitude is like as we're fulfilling his will, he cares greatly about that. And above all, again, please be humble. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. So please do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And finally, this morning, application number three, what can we learn from Jerusalem? Namely, what can we learn from Hezekiah? Well, trust in the Lord immediately. Don't sin by trying other options first. Hezekiah went to Assyria, went to Egypt, went to Assyria for help first, not to God immediately. Don't be like him in that. Be like him in how he humbled himself and sought the Lord in sackcloth and ashes. How he, spread it out, how he spread out the letter before the Lord and prayed to the Lord. Two purposes. He prayed for God's name to be uplifted and for God's people to be saved. The glory and the good. 
So brothers and sisters, when faced with trial or temptation, first seek the Lord immediately. How? By prayer. How? By reading and studying his word. How? By seeking counsel from mature believers. Don't run to Assyria for help. Don't go to people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. Faithful the wounds of a friend. Don't search the internet. Don't ask unsafe family and friends or any unbiblical source. Go to the word of God. And then get confirmation from godly brothers and sisters. And secondly, of course, trust God for the outcome. Go to him and then trust his will. It may not always be to deliver, but trust that he knows what he's doing. Why? For his glory and for your good. Matthew Henry said, the tyrants of the world are but the tools of providence. Do you believe this? God called Assyria the rod of his anger. God will call Babylon his servant. Jesus tells Pontius Pilate that Pilate would have no authority over him if it wasn't granted him by God the Father. Amazing. God is in control. So Christians, when faced with frightening situations, trust in the unseen hand of God which drives all of history. Humbly seek the reason why it may be happening to you. Now, don't rudely demand an answer. Why, God, are you doing this? Why, God? But ask in humility. We may never know in this life, but in some cases, God may grant us a reason. Perhaps there's hidden sin in your life that needs to be manifested, confessed, and repented of. You see, painful events coming your way may be ordered by God to chastise you and to bring you to your knees in repentance. If this is pricking your heart now, don't fight it. I urge you, do not delay. Confess and repent immediately. Run to Jesus. He is faithful and just and will forgive you for your sins and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And finally and lastly, if what you're facing now isn't a result of unconfessed sin, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just an occasion for you to increase your faith. In closing, listen to this quote from John Calvin regarding this subject. He says, Hence we infer that the Lord hath displayed his power in defending his church in order that when our affairs are in the most desperate state, we may remain steadfastly in the faith and relying on his grace, we still may cherish a pleasing hope. By means and in ways that are unexpected, he often delivers his church. And he did, and as he did by the hands of Gideon and Moses, we ought always, therefore, to call to remembrance these benefits that we may be excited more and more to confidence and perseverance. Maybe it's not your sin, but maybe he's using the situation to increase your faith and make you steadfast. Brothers and sisters, seeing the Lord deliver us strengthens our faith. Amen? Let us learn to be more trusting in him today. Psalm 37.5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Amen. Amen.